tonight. <clears throat> tonight I want to speak about the development of equanimity or balanced mind uh, in practice and especially in the face of the challenges of the defilements when we find ourselves uh, confronted by or uh, entangled in reactivity in some way. Life, as we know, is a contact sport and we are constantly bumping up against uh, the challenges of being human, whether it's our own body, our own mind, uh, others' bodies and others' minds. And in the face of that, we have learned uh, a way of reacting that, for better or worse, has become something of a default setting. And in case you don't know what yours is, just ask your friends and partners. <laughs> Sometimes they know it better than we do, but we know the suffering that comes when we get entangled in reactivity and we spout off or we do things without that understanding and the impartiality of a balanced uh, mind. <coughs> Equanimity arises imperceptibly in practice. And it does because we, we plant the seed through understanding, understanding the law of karma, understanding the nature of practice. We plant the seed of non-reactivity, but our habits are strong and they often have their say, have their day. So I want to speak about practice, equanimity as a, as a preliminary understanding for practice, as a way of dealing with difficulties when they arise. And then I want to mention briefly how we experience equanimity when there's more, more momentum to our practice so that we can begin to um, recognize it. Now, it should be clear, but it's not always clear, that equanimity and this development of the uh, non-reactive mind or the mind that is impartial towards the pleasant and unpleasant challenges of life, it should be clear that equanimity is not about avoiding life. It's not about cutting yourself off. It's not about suppressing your reactivity. But it's about living the fullness of life and feeling what life's experience offers. But having emotional maturity that can withstand the inevitable unpleasantness and not just get overwhelmed or infatuated with the inevitable pleasantness. But sometimes when we think of, oh, a life of non-reactivity, that's pretty passionless, that's pretty flat, that's pretty it sounds kind of dry and monastic. Well, <laughs> actually, if it was dry, it wouldn't be real equanimity because equanimity stays in touch with and stays in relationship to people and the events of life. And that always has a certain, there's a certain moistness in the heart when we stay in touch with people. 
We recently received a letter from uh, a friend student uh, in New Zealand who has been practicing Dharma for some many years. And she's recently had a uh, life-threatening uh, challenge. And I want to read uh, part of her letter to, to help show how equanimity supports not suffering in life. Hello. Although I remember how ill I was leading up to the hospitalization last March and all the horrible subsequent chemo side effects, I still find it hard to bring words like, I have cancer over my lips. In fact, it somehow feels like a joke, as cancer and I just don't seem to go together. My not liking and suffering because of it, my husband's problems and his not coping ongoingly, was and is so much worse than the cancer, as well as the utterly agonizing chemo side effects, which were just that, absolutely awful. But I didn't suffer from them and from not being unable to walk or to care for myself. That's how it was. Chaos here, even-mindedness there. Now that shows me how multi-leveled I am. Even-minded, yes, but not all the time. In fact, there's so many facets, but by directly seeing them, therefore, I don't feel the pain, or rather, when I really feel the weight of them, it makes a difference. And as long as I can really see what's going on, I feel okay. But then, ha ha ha, the agitation like yesterday, reading the hematologist review, all those diagnoses, how can that person still be alive? And that person is me. And reading this report feels like being made into a sickness his words creating my problem, when underneath of it all, I feel fine. There's so many levels, yes, I'm fine, as long as I can see. According to the scan in mid-January, no new lumps or bumps have appeared, and yet I continue to ask myself, what if there's a recurrence? And my immediate recurring answer is, no more chemo, no way. There's no guarantee anyway, I'd better live for now. And that's what I do, trying to be aware, trying to take what is rather than bemoan what is not. So many words, but that's how I feel, mostly sometimes. Despite many friends, I like being by myself and yet am often asked, aren't you bored? No, I am not, ever. How often have I had to say, oh, I don't have the time, now I do, and I enjoy it. I love not being in the hospital. I love being able to cook, to read, to knit. No longer nauseous, no longer headachy. I still have mouth ulcers, mouth ulcers, but they're manageable. The tip of the tongue is still tingling and burning, and I have taste impairment. Indoors, I can slowly walk unaided, but each step is a practice because I can't flex my ankle and I have to lift my whole knee to take a step without stumbling. I haven't had any falls yet and I don't intend to either. <coughs> this woman has the conditions that plenty of reason to suffer, plenty of reason to be upset, plenty of reason to feel victimized and blame and just to to succumb to the overwhelming, well, unpleasantness of life. But you can read in her letter and you can hear in her letter how that's not the problem. As long as she can pay attention, as long as she can be with it, even these very unpleasant conditions, her mind stays at ease. That's what equanimity is not running away from, very difficult, not hiding, not denying, not blaming, not feeling victimized, but just accept, well, this is the way it is.
And that understanding, this, this is the way it is, is really uh, an articulation of a deep understanding and acceptance of the law of karma. After all, the way it is, well, that's the way it is. If we can see it, we can bring ourselves into alignment with it, stop struggling, stop suffering. If we can't, then we're forever holding out the hope or the possibility or the expectation that it should have been, could have been, would have been different. And it isn't. In the practice of equanimity as a Brahma Vihara, which uh, Kamala has begun to teach you, it is recalling the law of karma that encourages the development of equanimity. When we, when we realize that the qualitative quality of the pleasantness or unpleasantness that we experience is, according to the law of karma, the karmic result of prior karmic actions. We live with our karma. What we experience is the result of our karma. Not exclusively, but it's one of the major conditions giving rise to this experience moment after moment. And one way of understanding that is to just acknowledge that whether I understand it or not, things in life are unfolding according to the law of karma. Huh. It's not a mistake to experience what you experience today. It arises due to causes and conditions often that we cannot see. We can't see all that brought this moment into existence. We say the present moment is a karmic result of the past, but it is the doorway to our future. And depending on how we approach how we deal with, how we respond to present moment given conditions plants the seeds of our future. Whether we'll be happy, whether we'll be angry, whether we'll be struggling. When we don't understand karma, when we don't have a, a glimpse of it, when we don't have some, I don't mean dogmatic acceptance of it, but at least some intuitive appreciation of it, then we get into you know the blame game, you know, my sufferings because you're doing something wrong, or we believe life's unfair. When if we really understood karma, we'd understand nothing that we experience in life is unfair. Yes, there's injustice in the world. Yes, there's pain in the world. Yes, there's carelessness. Yes, there's evil in the world. That's the way it is. The challenge for us is to acknowledge that this is the way it is, to accept this is the way it is, and deal as best we can with it, rather than avoid, deny, minimize. Another understanding that uh, the law of karma offers to support our practice is that what we experience is a natural unfolding. Therefore, what we are experiencing, what we are experiencing moment to moment is just the nature of the body. It's the nature of the mind. It's the nature of the unfolding of causes and conditions, most of which are very impersonal. The body has its own agenda. It is going to get sick on its own time. It's going to get. It's going to age at its own rate. It's going to pass away when it's good and ready. 
in spite of our wishes. But that's the way it is. And uh, understanding that what we experience is just the nature of the body helps us to let go of this insistent demand or expectation that I should be able to control it. You know, I should be able to sit down and be pain-free for 45 minutes. Who said? Well, we say, but does the body listen? <laughs> Didn't today. So what is it going to take for us to come to terms with and accept the fact that we can't control whether the body feels pain or not? It's a given. This is the nature of the body. So when we experience that discomfort, rather than blaming ourselves, rather than blaming the anything, the, the sitting posture, the chair, the cushion, whatever, this is the nature of the body. This is what we're observing. Can we have an understanding that allows us to be at ease with that? I didn't say enjoy, but just at ease. This is the way it is. When we begin uh, practice, it's helpful to understand that the challenges, the difficulties in our practice is all because of visiting forces in the mind. As the Buddha said, the mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. So whatever frustration, disappointment, anger, irritation, pride, exuberance, whatever it is that you felt today, it was possible, it was conditioned by a force that had entered the mind, seen or not, that conditioned the suffering, conditioned the struggle, conditioned the, I don't want it to be this way. So we should understand what these defilements are. All defilements are a reactivity to the way things are. Well, that means when the defilement is present, equanimity can't be. In fact, by definition, equanimity and defilements can't coexist. We say that the far enemy of equanimity, that which is furthest away from equanimity are the defilements, reactivity. The reactivity of aversion in all of its forms, irritation, frustration, disappointment, fear, judgment, or the reactivity of desire, wanting, craving, expectation, anticipation, ambition. The defilements arise in relation to pleasant and unpleasant experiences in our bodies, in our minds, in our environment. This is natural. This is the natural unfolding of the mind, that when something pleasant arises in our experience, the natural unfolding of the conditioned mind is to be attached, to seek it, to grasp it, to hold on to it. It's not even personal to you, but you're the one who suffers with it. It is the natural activity of mind that when something unpleasant arises in your experience, whether it's pain in the body or cold in the morning or hot in the afternoon or you eat too much or you don't have, you're hungry and you didn't eat enough or any other pleasant or unpleasant experience the reactivity of grasping or the reactivity of aversion it's a natural unfolding of the conditioned unliberated mind other defilements sometimes are a little less obviously a reactivity Pride, for example, something happens. We have a good, we have a good sitting, or at least a few minutes of a good sitting. 
doesn't take long before I jump right in there and claim it as me, as mine. Aren't I doing well to myself, if not to others? Pride in itself in that moment is not so clear that you see the suffering of that. But it doesn't last. You know, just keep sitting. You'll see. And then the pain comes and the deflated sense of self that was so kind of irrationally inflated due to the pride suffers. When we begin practice, by pre-framing our understanding and setting our attitude, we can approach the inevitable defilements with understanding, knowing that causes and conditions come together to produce this moment. It's a natural appearance due to causes and conditions. It may be pleasant, it may be unpleasant. That's not our choice. It also is not controllable. We can't choose whether the body is going to feel pleasant this sitting. We can't choose whether something is going to arise in the mind that upsets us. We can watch and see when it happens, but we can't control or pre-program our experience in that way. Once arisen, if we see that this is a natural process, if we see, oh, this is the nature of mind, or this thinking, this uh, judging, this perceiving is a natural activity of mind, if we see that the experiences in the body, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the heat, the coolness, the tightness, the sleepiness, are all natural activities of the body. What's, what's the struggle? It's when we think, oh, there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with my practice, this shouldn't be happening, that we don't have an accurate understanding. And without that understanding, our balance of mind is disturbed. So really, equanimity is supported by and matures through refining our understanding of the way things are. We can pre-program our mind, but it's through seeing things clearly, as this woman said, when I get the chance to see things clearly as they are, I don't suffer. But it does take, and the development of uh, equanimity takes endurance, putting up with, enduring the unpleasantness that inevitably comes. It takes awareness and it takes understanding. All of these are components of maturing equanimity. When we practice, no expectations. No expectations, no disappointment. If you felt disappointed in your practice, you can be sure there was some unacknowledged expectation, anticipation, hope that practice could be or should be different. One way to cultivate equanimity in practice is to remind yourself this is the way it is. Things are the way they are. And even though that sounds so obvious, so often when we're experiencing what life has to offer, there is an assumption or there's a, a kind of an unspoken, unspoken belief that it's wrong. It shouldn't be happening this way. I'm not doing it right. And we kind of live in denial. We live in some level of, or some degree of denial of the way things are. And just to remind yourself, oh, this is the way it is right now. Things are the way they are. Things are unfolding according to laws of karma and the laws of nature. Well, sometimes that bold uh, recognition things are the way they are, this is the way it is right now, is a little bit, yeah, but I don't like it. 
well, that's where we meet the, uh, uh, the, the or w that's where the understanding of how temporary all these experiences are is helpful. So not only are things are the way they are, but you can add this little phrase, for now. And you'd be surprised at how, what a relief that can offer when you're struggling with anything. If you can remember, this is the way it is. And then add that little kicker, for now. It invites us to endure, to just, to just be with it, to just know. The challenge in practice is, can our awareness outlast the unpleasantness? Really? And so you just ask yourself, can I bear with this? If this doesn't get any worse, is that okay? So often there is, again, a hidden assumption, an unexamined belief hovering just on the periphery of our vision that it's going to get worse. If we think it's going to get worse, it is already immediately worse. So we need to recognize that assumption or that, that belief and confront it directly and say, well, if it doesn't get any worse, can I bear with it? And nine times out of ten, we can. We can. But we don't take the opportunity. Practice is the willingness to take the opportunity to extend yourself. And you just have to ask yourself, can I? Am I willing to bear this? Because an interesting thing happens. We stop looking for an excuse. We stop looking for someone or something or ourselves to blame. We understand, oh, this is the nature of the body. And this, this willingness to bear with it invites us to learn about this. You can even ask yourself, what do I know about this experience? What can I learn about this experience? I mean, we all face, well, somebody was speaking about sleepiness in the group today. Sleepiness. We've all dealt with sleepiness probably a lot these first couple of days. And while it's not a lot of suffering, it's unpleasant. It's a challenge. It's kind of, it's kind of a pain. It's kind of like, I wish I didn't have to deal with this. But what did we learn about it? What did we learn about our experience of sleepiness or dullness or torpor today? Every experience is an opportunity to learn. If we understand that we're learning about the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, we're learning about the nature of sleepiness, we're learning about the nature of pain, we're learning about the nature of restlessness, we're learning about the nature of all the defilements, all the unpleasantness, all the pleasantness that comes to the body and mind. If we can remember to acknowledge this is the way it is, add the impermanent phrase of for now, and understand that it is the nature of the body and mind that we're looking at in order to learn, one thing that we'll notice, and an important insight that we I, unfortunately have to learn over and over and over again is Nothing lasts very long. It just doesn't last. And what that shows us as we steady our attention and we just stabilize our mind and recognize what's going on, and we see that, you know, we either get bored of it, 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 it stops, uh, we, we lose interest in it, something else calls our attention. What we learn with that is how quickly things change but how often we assume they won't. There's this, well, the Buddha called it, uh, we could say, a built-in delusion, a built-in wrong understanding, where 
we assume it feels like things are just going to last, that things are going to be this way forever. Of course, we know nothing is going to be that way. Nothing's going to be forever. But the feeling is, when you're feeling it, that it will. And we have to look at that. We have to recognize, oh, there's an, there's an assumption, or there's a belief that's kind of attaching itself to this experience. And when we really look at it and expose that assumption, well, it gets denied immediately when we see that things change as quickly as they do. Our effort in practice succeeds when we can balance our subjective feeling of the experience with an objective awareness of it. If we're totally immersed in the subjective feeling of our experience, we're easily led about, easily overwhelmed. We don't have the clarity of really understanding what's happening because we're lost in the middle of it. Our sense of ourself has been swallowed by or merged with the feeling tone of the experience. Awareness is the ability to step out of the experience, turn around and look at it, and just say, oh, it's not, I'm afraid, I'm irritated, I'm sleepy, it's, oh, awareness of sleepiness, awareness of fear, awareness of whatever is causing you difficulty. And when, there, when we can see that, oh, fear is being known, dullness is being known, irritation is being known, attachment and clinging, wanting, expectation is being known, there's both the subjective feeling of that. We're not so cut off from it that we don't feel it but there's also not an identification with it. This is the beginning of freedom, where there is the awareness of the experience, the moment's experience, whatever it is. But defilements arise. We don't like what we experience, or we like what we experience. Well, we're, we don't even see what we experience. And so the the challenge for us is to, to work with them, to, to have some way of identifying the defilements and uh, encouraging ourselves to work with them. And the first step is to recognize them, to recognize, to be able to name what this experience is. Now, that doesn't sound so difficult. except it's impossibly difficult. Excuse me. When I did my first three-month retreat years ago, first couple of weeks, going pretty good. The next six weeks was sloth and torpor. And even though I reported sloth and torpor when I went for my check-ins and interviews, I was talking about it. I was thinking about it rather than learning how to be mindful of it. Now there's a big difference between being torpored, thinking about your torpor, you know, I didn't sleep last night, I got to sit all these times, I was working hard, thinking about it, and actually being mindful of it. If we're just indulging it, if we're explaining it, if we're lost in it, that's not being mindful of it. And with that, in some ways, there isn't a mindful recognition of it. After I'd been practicing for 10 years, I went to Burma and joined the monastery and was practicing intensively like this for months. 
at one point, I can remember where I was walking on the back side of the hall, you know, where the dorm, where the dorm rooms were. And I was walking in that direction toward the toilet. I can remember there came to my mind the understanding that I was caught in self-pity. That my default response was to anything was, oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. I was 35 years old. I had never seen this in my life. If you'd ever asked me, oh, do you feel self-pity? Are you, you pity yourself? I wouldn't know what you was, well, I would have denied it because I didn't know. I, I didn't know what it was. I'd never seen it. But once I saw it, I realized, my God, I fall into this blind spot incessantly. It was the explanation for why I was, who I was, how I was, and always would be. But once I saw self-pity and how it was working and, and the deflated defeatism that comes with it, I didn't miss it. I kept seeing it. Every time it came up, I would see it again and again and again, trying to get a hold of my mind, trying to, well, I can't give it a personality like it was trying to get a hold of my mind. I was letting it. But once I began to see it, or once awareness had kind of grokked it, kind of got its number, every time it would come up, oh, mindfulness would be right there and see it. Wow, even here I would have fallen into that again. Again and again and again and again. I can't remember. It's been years since I ever felt self-pity or got lost in it. It's just not a, it's not, it's not a defilement or a blind spot in my mind. It is something that has been seen over and over again. It's structure, it's feeling, it's habits have been exposed. And this is what awareness does. It exposes the defilements that we live with, take for granted, so much of our life until we practice. And through practice, we expose them. We come to see them and how they get entangled in the mind around different experiences. You know, we all have these trip wires that cause us to feel shame, angry, or fearful, or proud. We have these little trip wires. We may know about them but our awareness may not catch them when they happen. This is why we practice. So that we can learn the nature of, in this case, self-pity. In your case, so you can learn the nature of whatever it is that causes you suffering. In practice we say, you can't let go of what you don't know you're holding on to. We know the practice is about letting go. Letting go of our fears, letting go of our this, letting go of that, letting go of our ambition, letting go of that. Well, the Buddha said in the Second Noble Truth that craving, holding on, attachment is the cause of all of our suffering. Okay, if hanging on is the cause of suffering, letting go is the cause of the end of suffering. So we know that the path of practice is learning to let go, learning how to let go of habits, let go of physical, material, mental things. If we don't know we're holding on, how can we let go? Or I should say, if we don't know what's holding on to us, how can we invite it to leave? Because that's sometimes what it feels like. You may have noticed today that sometimes, you know, some, some drama arises in the mind, some emotional reactivity, some upsetness or some irritation, something arises in the mind. And while you would like to let it go, having the intention to let it go doesn't let it go. Because a lot of the holding on in the mind is not 
just intentional. It's a deeply conditioned habit. And even though you have the intention to, okay, I'm ready to let go of this anger. I'm ready to let go of this fear. I'm ready to let go of this, you know, jealousy. I'm ready to let go of this anger at somebody. I'm ready to forgive, forget, get it over with. Even though you're ready, it doesn't happen. Intention is not powerful enough to let go of these habits of mind. Oh, sure, if you have a, you know, a, a, if you're just caught in a daydream and you notice it, oh, you can let that go. Let that go, come back to the present, start again. That's easy. But when emotional drama or when the deep, deeply conditioned reactive habits of mind are seen, it takes more than intention. It takes continuity of awareness. It's only through continuity of awareness that we will be able to put aside the defilements for any length of time. Continuity of awareness. It can be awareness of the breath. It can be awareness of the posture. It can be awareness of the movements of the legs and walking. Or it can be awareness of changing objects. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the continuity of the awareness. This is what collects the mind. This is what stabilizes the mind. This is what makes it possible to not get entangled in the defilements. Defilements arise. They're all unpleasant. We have learned strategies in our life for dealing with defilements. Sometimes we just act them out. You want something? Get it. You're angry? Express it. You're sleepy? Take a nap. You're restless? You know, take a drug. We found, we've, we, we have somehow all gotten the strategies or developed strategies to address the unpleasantness of the defilements. And a lot of it is acting out. When you come on a retreat like this, we, we set the container of the retreat. Um, there's a schedule, there's silence, there's uh, predictable uh, activities through the day, the instructions, the interviews, the Dharma talks in the evening. It's all a very kind of safe place. There's no surprises, there's no big dramas, nothing, nothing asked of you. Just, just kind of slip into the schedule. If you do, the, the energy builds up. It gets hard because there's really no place to act out your defilements. And so you have, to, you have to work with them. You have to see them. You have to work with them in the mind. We're not allowing you to express it. We're not allowing you to act it out. Or I say, the format of the retreat contains the energy that would normally be dissipated by acting them out. Why do we do that? Why do we build a container of retreat to preserve the energy that's normally dissipated? Because it takes that much energy to deal with these defilements. It takes tremendous energy to forbear your anger, your impatience, your, your rage, whatever it is. Because they, these are powerful forces in the mind. And to see them nakedly and to feel the intensity of energy in them takes a tremendous amount of determination, resoluteness, fortitude, forbearance, energy in the mind. And so we encourage you to uh, follow the format of the retreat as a way of preserving and conserving your energy. Sometimes it's difficult. We know. The energy that builds up in the mind itself can be pretty unpleasant, let alone the energy in the body that can sometimes be really unpleasant. 
but this is the energy that's needed to confront, to endure, and to let go of uh, these, these forces in the mind that cause you suffering. Once we learn to, to handle this amount of energy, it's like learning how to uh, up your amperage or your wattage or something in the body. Once you learn how to handle it, then you can, then you can handle it. But it takes a gradual act, acclimatization of getting used to this much energy in the mind, this much energy in the body. So we encourage you to understand that this is what's happening. And sometimes you feel it physically, sometimes you feel it mentally, sometimes you feel it emotionally. And just to bear with, bear with that as much as possible. Our student goes on to write two days later. Ooh, how quickly things can change, especially my feelings. Hmm. Recently, my sister, along with her husband and two teenage sons, came to visit. And until they could find their own home, I had offered them a place to stay with me, saying, make my home your home, as long as you don't cook meat in my pan. I said, and that was okay. We got on exceptionally well, despite various differences, which I mainly took as teachings, and mostly I felt at ease. So too, one day, eagerly expecting their return from an outing, looking forward to them and to the pizza they'd promised to bring, we were all sunshine, and I particularly noticed my ease, or rather, my absence of unease. We laughed and chatted until, out of the blue, I felt as if struck by lightning, as if banged over the head, as if cheese gratered down the spine, stabbed in the heart, heat waves and head, heart racing, wanting to scream in agony, and the thoughts, how dare she, how inconsiderate, Give people a finger and they take the whole hand. Too stunned, I just sat there unable to utter a word because of what they had done to me by more, but more so by watching my reactions. It is unbelievable how quickly, in a second, my mood had changed. I kept thinking, this is how quickly the mood can change. Not only for me, it happens to everyone. This is how crazy life is for all of us. All I could do was to continue breathing until finally getting up, laughing to myself at my inability to act in any other way, despite seeing so clearly, ha ha ha, storming into my room, watching out not to fall, grabbing a flask of peppermint oil and splashing it all around me to override the smell wafting from the oven, while at the same time I was reasoning, well, at least they didn't use my pan, I had not asked them not to use the oven for their meat pizza. They should have more sense, I thought. Me, 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 poor me. Them, 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 damn them. But, I <laughs> but also, at the same time, I remembered Kamala's talking about how we sometimes want to lash out. Yeah, 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 hissing to myself. That's how it is sometimes, like right now. <laughs> Hardly able to contain myself, I badly wanted to lash out, but I didn't. Instead, I, is this the stuff of a good movie? In dead silence, I shunned the pizza, and I fixed myself something else from the fridge. Not that I had any appetite. Aren't we humans so utterly crazy? Reactions all over the place when getting something unwanted or not getting something that's wanted. In my experience, this is a major cause for suffering, and I'm continuously amazed at just how difficult it can be to break the cycle. But working with it, I find joyful. And the fact that I could laugh, only internally though, and that the whole scenario did not leave any ill feelings against them in my heart, speaks for itself. That's the path ahead. We all have these time bombs planted in our minds. Something's going to happen, and we get blown up by some unexpected emotional reactivity. We, we know it's 
we know it's waiting for us. It's just around the corner. Anything can happen anytime and we get explosive. It is awareness and the ability to bear with it that allows us to begin to see through it, to let go, to really understand this is the way it is and not suffer with that. She couldn't change her sister. She couldn't change her brother-in-law, kids, what they're doing. All she can do is watch her own mind and not suffer with what naturally arises due to causes and conditions outside of her immediate control. This is our, this is our task. This is our challenge. Even in the silence and the simplicity of this retreat, time bombs are going off. You know, they're just landmines or mind mines, I guess they're mind mines, things waiting to be stepped on by, well, some experience. It just blows up. As Kamala mentioned last night, it is the balancing of the controlling faculties that guides us in this effort. To develop the awareness that this is the way things are, to have the energy and the, 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 the stamina to endure, to have the tranquility of the concentration to not get caught in our reactivity, to have the faith that practice leads to less suffering and the understanding. This is the way it is for now. Equanimity grows slowly in our practice. We start with it, we cultivate it. Every moment of awareness has a piece of equanimity, some degree of equanimity. But because the intensity of our reactions are so strong, we often don't see equanimity. We often don't feel it until very mature practice, when it really uh, comes to the forefront and, and, and carries our practice. So we have to bear with our reactivity, with understanding, with patience, fortitude, and in time we'll see that equanimity is the best ally we could have in navigating the terrain of life. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. <clears throat> 